Welcome to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. WellMed Radio will educate you about health and wellness for seniors and their families throughout Bear County in Central Texas. During the next hour, your hosts Ron Aaron and nurse practitioner Cora Zhuk will share information that will help you improve your health and wellness. And now, here's Ron Aaron and Cora Zhuk. Well, thank you very much and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, and we are delighted to have back his third time on WellMed Radio, which is very unusual, Dr. Chris Thompson, who is a cardiologist, happens to be my cardiologist as well. He's with WellMed Specialists for Health, and we're delighted to have him here in our studio to talk about a variety of issues and topics, but we thought we'd begin with the whole question of stroke and the news a couple of weeks ago about uh, actor performer Luke Perry uh, suffering a stroke really frightened a lot of people. Yeah, first I told my wife I'd give her a shout out that she is a huge Luke Perry fan. I think she was more upset by him dying than if I died. <laughs> but uh, you know, we, we all see these events unexpected, and then especially as a doctor, you kind of like self-diagnose in your mind what might have happened. And of course, you really don't know any details of this person's health. But I assumed based on him being 50 years old, relatively young, seemingly in great health, that he probably had a a stroke of the intracranial bleeding or hemorrhage type, um, which can strike kind of any age, but it's kind of the classic stroke of a young, healthy person um, with no warning. Uh, And often, if it's a larger bleed, can be fatal like like his was within, you know, just, I guess, a few days. Um, but in the end, they said it was not a it was not a hemorrhagic stroke. It was an ischemic stroke, which surprised me. Um, ischemic means ischemic means a cessation of blood flow to the brain, um, so some kind of clogging of an artery. And we can talk about the ways that that happens, as opposed to as I mentioned, hemorrhagic is basically bleeding in the brain, uh, which can also happen for several different causes. Now, I'm I'm friendly with. Uh uh, Tim Dirk, who was the best of the ever Spurs Coyotes, who had a stroke at a relatively young age, a guy who was in, he thought, perfect health, incredible athlete to do what the Spurs Coyote does, had a stroke. He said later, and, and I've interviewed him several times, and he wrote a book about it, he ignored what were warning signs. Yeah, um, there's certainly... Uh, of course, be, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, I, I would say... It's, Sometimes the first symptom of a heart attack or a stroke uh, could be really a major heart attack or stroke with no warning signs at all. Um, but certainly in, an, in a percentage of cases, maybe even a majority of cases, there have been some warning signs um, with the hemorrhagic type. Um, one of the major symptoms of when you have the big bleed is a severe headache. And often patients have had kind of unusual headaches leading up to that. Uh, for this clot or ischemic type, you often can have what we call a TIA or transient ischemic attack, kind of a mini stroke. Um, and those can be a variety of symptoms from visual changes to numbness to some temporary weakness, um, maybe inability to speak for a short period of time. But it, it usually goes away, and therefore, if it goes away, we don't call it a full stroke if it goes away, at least in a short period of time. But those sort of symptoms ought to prompt you to go see your doctor and say, hey, this is what happened, and let the doctor decide you know, what they might want to do. You know, in fact, our, our guest last week um, was a, is a diabetic educator for WellMed, and she was telling us uh, how she had the flu and then started seeing an aura. And just she thought maybe it was a retinal detachment, wasn't sure, happened to have an eye a doctor appointment the next day, went in, and he said, no, you basically had a mini stroke after the flu. And and she looked up that this is common, this can happen, but it, it's scary. And she's a relatively healthy individual, so it can happen to anybody. Yeah, and I would certainly say if you have symptoms that might represent a stroke, um, certainly if, if it's a sudden onset and it hasn't gone away within you know a few minutes, uh, you're thinking about calling 911, and we'll actually talk about. I have a mnemonic to help people remember. Oh, cool! The symptoms of a stroke and when to call 911. But um, certainly, tell your doctor these things if you didn't go to the hospital and let them decide if yeah we think that might have been a stroke or not. Certainly, in the vision, 
you know, there can be a lot of different things uh, with the eye. And, you know, I would trust the eye doctor, I guess, if he thought that her retina was fine and her cornea was fine, that um, you ought to start looking for stroke causes. We're talking with Dr. Chris Thompson, a well-med cardiologist with specialists in health, graduate of Georgetown University Medical School, and he is here to talk about stroke, and we may expand that into other issues involving the heart. I'm Ron Aaron. If you just joined us, you're listening to us on 930 AM. The Answer Corps Juke, nurse practitioner, is our co-host. And one of the things uh, Tim Dirk mentioned to me when I interviewed him, uh, he thought he was fortunate because when he actually had a full-blown stroke, he was in a hospital making a visit as the coyote hmm. so that he said, you know, you're going to have a stroke, not a bad place to be. Yeah. I guess let's talk about recognizing a stroke then. Good. Because um, there is a lot of confusion, all sorts of different symptoms that people sometimes come to us and say, I thought I might have been having a stroke. And uh, sometimes that was a good thought and sometimes it wasn't. So they have a mnemonic. A mnemonic is a something, you know, a word that I guess stands for things. Each letter stands for something. So the one for stroke is called FAST, F-A-S-T. So the F stands for face. So if you are worried somebody's having a stroke, first thing to do is look at their face. And we usually tell them smile. And when you smile, your, your corners, your mouth should go up. Even your eyes may go up a little bit. And if you're having a stroke, usually one side of the face will basically be paralyzed. The one, one side will go up and the other side will not go up and look like a droop. So that would certainly be one concerning sign, and um, that probably would prompt me to call 911 if you know, it hadn't gone away very quickly. Uh, the next one, the A stands for arms, and that's testing your strength, and you hold your arms out straight to your sides and try to hold them up. And a person having a stroke, the good arm will stay up, but the side of the body being affected by the stroke, will, it will start to drift down. And I guess that brings me to the point that most strokes are only affecting one side of the body. Uh, the way the brain is wired, if you have some damage to one side of the brain, the other side of the body may have weakness, may have um, inability to smile, like we said, um, may affect the speech centers, may affect vision. So if it's right side, it would be the left side of your body. Yep. But patients don't need to worry about that. The doctors will have to figure that out. Right. So then S, as I kind of alluded to, so F was for face, A was for arms, S is for speech. Uh, and that would be some garbling of the words um, or possibly not being able to get the word out in your brain. Um, our medical term for that is aphasia. But, like, I know that what I want to say to you, but it kind of gets stuck somewhere between my brain and my mouth. Uh, and that's a pretty specific sign for stroke, actually. And then the, the T for the fast, the face, arm, speech, and T stands for time. And that basically means it is a medical emergency. Call 911. Don't wait to see if it gets better, don't have your spouse drive you to the hospital. Um, you know, like you said, the coyote was lucky to be in the hospital because he's already eliminated the transport time. You know, I would say let's take him straight to the emergency room. And the reason it's such a hurry is if it's the clot type of a stroke, you can give a very powerful blood thinner called TPA, and we only give it within the first three hours of the stroke. After that, the clot is thought to be too firm, and the risks of the blood thinner are higher. So you want to get to the hospital as soon as possible, ideally within three hours. Then how quickly can they determine in the ER that it's a clot? Well, it would be, much of it would be based on the symptoms, like we were just discussing. Mm -hmm. And then they very quickly get you to a CAT scan of the brain, CT scan of the brain. The big question is, you know, again, these strokes can be a bleed into the brain or they could be a clot into the brain. And the majority are clots, but certainly enough of them are bleeds that you don't want to just give a blood thinner to everybody who might be having a bleed into the brain, and you would basically make that condition much worse. Now, I had always thought, but obviously incorrectly, that it's mostly older people having strokes. I mean, if you looked at the overall demographic, the risk is higher in older patients, but it can happen at any age. Um, there's different causes for different age groups. Um, if you ask me, you know, what causes strokes in young people, I would say probably two main things. One would be the bleeds. The bleeds in a young person would probably be a brain aneurysm that they never knew they had. Often these are very small, um, would only be picked up kind of accidentally if you had a CAT scan or MRI for some other reason. Usually there's no symptoms. So that would be a leading cause in a young person. Um, those are very dangerous and often fatal. You know, you have to have brain surgery to try to remove the blood. Often so much damage has been done by the time you even get to the brain surgeon that it's hopeless. Uh, and the other one is clots. And the way that young people have clots is usually not the same as our older patients, but it can be a clot in the body that can go through the heart. There's a 
condition called a patent foramenal valley or PFO, where you're born with a hole in your heart. Um, and it's actually a very common hole. Up to 1 in 25% of people have this hole in the heart that doesn't cause strokes in most people, but it can cause a stroke unexpectedly in a young person. Um, well, when your heart pumps, doesn't the blood go out that hole? Well, the, you have two sides of your heart. The, your veins on, of your body drain through the right side and then through the lungs, and then the blood from the lungs gets pumped by the left side into the body. When we're a fetus and our mother, there's a natural hole in the back of the atrium between the right and left atrium called the patent foramenal valley. It's supposed to close in the first few hours or days after birth, but up to 25% of people that never closes. And it basically kind of leaves a little flap that in most of those 25% of people, they don't ever have a problem. But certain people, if you form a blood clot, it can pop through and go to the bad side of the body and cause a, a stroke in the brain. Is that something you look for in newborns? Is it closed? Is it not? They don't. I don't think they. Ju- I'm, I'm, I'll first. I'll caveat by saying I'm not a pediatric cardiologist, so I think if the baby's doing well, they're not looking into that. They just kind of assume it closes. You know, if there's oxygen problems, they may look into that. It it would be more likely a larger hole, like an atrial septal defect, something of that nature. The reason we know that up to 25% of people have it is we can now see it when we do these echocardiograms. Uh, if we're worried about causes of strokes, we can inject these micro bubbles uh, and we can see some of the bubbles pop from oh. one side of the heart to the other side of the heart. So that's a pretty routine practice now, especially in the mm-hmm. hospital for stroke evaluations is to look for these um, connections and then decide if it needs to be uh, closed. There is a procedure now to close it percutaneously through the leg. Percutaneously? Through through the skin, basically, but it doesn't require open-heart surgery. You can go in through the leg, um, up the veins, into the right side of the heart, and they have a little kind of, it looks like two little mushrooms or a little clamshell that, that closes this hole and prevents any clots from going so through. So it must be a little camera attached. Well, we're doing it all by x-ray guidance, so, oh. yeah. Um, a fluoroscopy machine yeah. that's actually in there and taking pictures live while they're while they're actually injecting um, medicine and dyes and all sorts of things. Like I was a kid in the fifties, my shoe store had a machine like that where I could see my little toes mm-hmm. and bones. Much, yeah, much like that. They've now outlawed that. Yeah, you know when we're talking <laughs> good about when we're talking about our elderly and and having having strokes and and I talk to a lot of our patients about their blood pressure in primary care and and the reason why it's important to control blood pressure because I know blood pressure can lead to strokes and I always tell them you know your if your blood pressure is too high you're likely to have a stroke. But the unfortunate part is it's going to be a stroke that doesn't kill you. And most people, when you talk to them like that, because they'll say, well, somebody's got to die anyway. Everyone's got to die of something. But when you're bedridden and you're dependent upon other people to take care of you because you're paralyzed or you can't speak or, or anything, then it's a whole different issue and it becomes more important to people. And that's why we get their attention <laughs> that way wow. as well. Now, I, I remember after I was diagnosed with uh, AFib, and Mm -hmm. Dr. Thompson was my cardiologist, there was concern for any patient with AFib, they explained to me, about clots and strokes. And so you put me on a blood thinner. Yep. Now, why shouldn't everybody be on a blood thinner? Well, I mean, there there are risks of blood thinner treatments. Um, Oh, now you tell me. In in the studies to show that it's a good thing to be on a blood thinner, they tabulate reductions in the blood clot caused strokes versus bleeding issues, which there is actually is a risk of bleeding into the brain being on a blood thinner, mm-hmm. relatively small with the newer blood thinners. But there's also risks of other types of bleeding, internal bleeding, like into the gastrointestinal tract, uh, those sorts of problems. So uh, in the patient with AFib, we actually have a point scale that tells us who's at a little bit higher risk of a stroke. Uh, things that increase your risk is being over age 65, being over age 75, even higher. Bingo. Um, being female actually is a risk factor. Really? Having high blood pressure, having diabetes, having had a previous stroke gets you double points. Uh, having had coronary artery disease or peripheral vascular disease hmm. uh, also. So we add those points up. If you get more than two points, we're generally recommending you go on a blood thinner because the stroke risk at that point is 3 or 4% per year or higher. And the bleed risk with the blood thinners is usually about 1% to 2%. And for those who have any kind of general surgery, very often they'll put a compression sock on their legs. Same idea? Keep the blood going? 
Yeah, in that case, they're trying to prevent blood clots of the veins of the legs, which usually would cause these pulmonary embolisms rather than strokes. Although getting back to that thing I mentioned with the PFO, actually it's thought to be blood clots in the legs that often go through these openings um, to cause a stroke. Hmm. But usually the patients that have the stroke never even knew that they had a blood clot anywhere in their body. What's the general risk of stroke? If you look at folks in our society... Uh, In the last few months, I've heard about younger and younger people, in my view, having a stroke. A late 20-year-old I I know of had a stroke and died. Uh, Another fellow I know in late 40s had a stroke. He's doing pretty well in recovery, uh, no permanent damage, but he seemed to be pretty young. Yeah, so I actually looked up some of the data on this. Um, And as you were mentioned, as as far as disability as well, um, it's the fifth leading cause of death overall. It causes about 5% of deaths, um, one in 19. Uh, and they said one death in America every three and a half minutes. Um, so it's not the leading causes of death. Stroke, or I mean heart attack, is, is higher. Um, but it actually is a leading cause of long-term disability. Up to 2% of the population is disabled from having wow. had previous strokes. And and like you had alluded to, most people don't die of a stroke. I mean, it is possible to die of a stroke. I was kind of surprised that Luke Perry died so quickly. Because I'm thinking of all the patients I've had with strokes, most of them, the vast majority don't die, but they're often left with long-term consequences from the brain damage. Mm. I tell patients there's no part of your brain that you don't need. Uh, You can have a heart attack and lose 30, 40% of your heart and still recover and feel well and be able to function and work and enjoy life. But, you know, just damage to a small part of your brain can leave you unable to speak, unable to see, unable to move half your body, your wheelchair bound. Um, may require 24-hour care if you know if you don't make a recovery. Now, they said that Luke Perry was in a coma, and, and the question is, is were they mechanically ventilating him? Did he lose his ability to breathe? We, we just don't know. We'll come back to point. that in just a minute. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, and our very special guest, cardiologist Dr. Chris Thompson. Carol Zorniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS On Air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, thank you for joining us. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, and our special guest, Dr. Chris Thompson. He is a cardiologist with Specialties for Health, part of the WellMed system. And we're talking with him about stroke and the two different types of strokes, who's at risk, who's not. Uh, And and when you think about lifestyle and eating and exercise, are there ways to minimize your risk of stroke? Uh, Definitely there are. And, you know, WellMed, we focus on prevention. It's one of the reasons I love working for WellMed is it's way better to prevent a stroke or a heart attack than try to deal with it afterwards. Um, there really are not very good treatments for stroke. Once you're past that three-hour window where you can get a blood thinner uh, to dissolve the stroke, the treatments are basically physical therapy and prayer and hoping that you get better. And wow. I tell the patients, almost everybody recovers some. I've seen a few recover completely, especially if it was a minor stroke, but I've seen a few major strokes recover completely. But Almost everybody is left with some deficits that affect their long-term life and ability to do things and function. Somebody mentioned to me that the worst place to have a heart attack or a stroke is at home because you say to your spouse, no, 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 don't call EMS. I'll be okay. Let's wait. That's typically a a male response. I mean, and I do the same thing myself is, you know, 
let me give it a little time and see what happens. You know, in the meantime, as I said, time is, you know, of the essence, both for heart attacks and strokes. And, you know, you need to get checked out soon. You know, even once you get to the hospital, they run a ton of tests and we're not sure, you know, we'll tell the family we're not sure what's happening yet. We're ruling out a heart attack or a stroke, you know. And so with all these tests and all these medical minds, we still don't know what's going on. So don't stay at home trying to figure it out yourself and self-diagnose and miss that window. So that's good advice. Get the in, doctor too. Get in early, and hey, I don't listen to my own advice. You could ask my wife again. <laughs> I hadn't seen the doctor in five years until she made me go see one of our nurse practitioners, <laughs> Mike Ryan out in Bernie. I'll give him a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the prevention. So make sure we do cover this. Um, I like to say, I didn't make this up. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Um, a stitch in time saves right. time. I mean, that's really how we operate in in WellMed. Is let's do things now before you have a problem. Uh, it's better for the patient. And not only are the things I'm going to talk about, you're not only preventing strokes, but you're preventing heart attacks. You're reducing your risk of kidney failure, cancers, all sorts of other things. So these are things that people probably already know that they should do. But let me talk about it in a little more detail. Probably number one, I think, is exercise, uh, maintaining an active lifestyle. The American Heart Association goal is 30 minutes, four or five days a week. They don't really specify what that has to be. And they like to give people freedom. You know, some people love to go to the gym and work out. Some people like to do yard work. Uh, some of my female patients, especially, I mean, they're just busy doing laundry and sweeping and vacuuming. And and that counts. If you're up on your feet, moving around, they basically say, if most of your body is moving, that counts. I have some guys who like tinker around in their garage and I think they're, you know, working on their cars or fixing small engines but that when when I ask them what are you actually doing, they're mostly sitting down. So I tell them that doesn't count. You got to be up on your feet. Lying on a roller under the car doesn't count. Yeah. So just using your hands doesn't count. You're not using enough muscle um, and burning enough, I guess, oxygen and glucose. But so 30 minutes of some kind of activity. I'm always plugging to the patients, and I'll mention it here in case anybody doesn't know. We have a program that I think most or all of our patients are eligible for called the Silver Sneaker Program. Uh, you can go to a gym, uh, a number of gyms in the area um, that take this. I know Gold's Gym does, uh, LA Fitness does, Planet Fitness does, the YMCA does. It's basically a free gym membership for the patients, and we do that because we know the, the value of uh, exercise in preventing a whole host of diseases. I, the thing I tell my patients is exercise helps almost everything that affects us as we get older. It's good for your heart your lungs, your circulation of your arms and legs. It helps your blood pressure, your glucose, your cholesterol. It helps prevent dementia. It helps your immune system. It improves your balance so you don't fall down and break bones and hips, prevents certain types of cancers. It so, also prevents medication. So the more you exercise, the less medication you have to be on for blood pressure and cholesterol and diabetes and everything else. And I've become even more of a believer since I've been working for WellMed because I have patients in their 90s uh, who are still exercising. And like you said, they're on either zero medicines or maybe they're on some vitamins, but they're not on diabetic medicine. They're not on four or five blood pressure pills. Now, you look like a gym rat, right? Mostly. So you hang out at a gym? What do you do? Well, so I, I started, you know, back in the Air Force, they make you pass fitness tests. So I did 20 years of having to stay in shape, which, you know, set up great kind of well, it compulsive. It a habit, right? It's a habit. And, you know, once you start working out and if you miss it for a short period of time, you just don't feel good. You realize I feel flabby and lazy. And once you get back exercising, like it kind of gives you energy. I've had patients tell me I, I don't have the energy to exercise. I'm like, start exercising and you'll get the energy. Um, but our recommendation now, which is actually what I do, is a combination of some kind of aerobic exercise, which might be walking on a treadmill or jogging if you're younger, exercise bike, elliptical machine, swimming, any of those are great. And then a little bit of weight exercise, resistance exercise is also good. Maintains muscle mass, which is good to keep the metabolism up and helps uh, prevent diabetes. It strengthens your bones, um, can help your strength as you get older um, so that you're still able to take care of yourself and stay at home longer into your 80s and even 90s, if you, know, if you can still get out of bed and make a bed and clean your house, um, it, it's helpful. Now, Cora recommends, if you can't get out, lifting soup cans. 
if they're big soup cans. Anything that you can do. So we have a lot of patients who are bed bound and they can't get out. And, and so we talk about upper body strength, you know, whether they have a trapeze, they can do trapeze work, or they can also just take soup cans and move. The, the whole point is move, get your metabolism going. You can't just sit and lay and eat. Yep. You have to move. And there's a another thing I recommend to the patients. I'm, I'm not sure if I know what channel it's on anymore. I think it used to be on ECTW the, or ECTN, the Catholic TV, but sit and fit. KLRN, yes, it's on channel public 9 television. now, public television. The same channel as Sesame Street. So if they're raising grandkids, that they can watch Sesame Street in the morning. And then KLRN um, does have the sit and be fit, and it's a wonderful program. Yeah. And then also the WellMed Senior Centers that we do with the city of San Antonio, they have senior classes, and some mm-hmm. of them are the sit and fit type things, mm-hmm. and others are everything from like dance and Zumba classes. Well, Zumba's big. Yeah. My wife does Zumba, so it's actually probably Luke Perry a lot. used to do Zumba. Did he? He probably I did. Don't know. I, I watched my wife do Zumba, and even though I work out, I'm thinking I can't do that. No, it's very tiring. Yeah. And I'm not coordinated enough either. <laughs> <laughs> You play with people's hearts. you got to be coordinated. The moral of the story, though, is just to become active and to do something. Even we were talking about last week, mall walkers and and, and anything, just joining that social activity where you have people who are accountable to you and you're accountable to them and you get up and they get active. Now, what else can you do? Exercise to prevent strokes. What else? So the next one I would say is diet, healthy diet. And most of us have a decent idea of what that is, but you mostly want to be eating fresh, unprocessed foods. Um, your protein, you know, if you're eating meat should be chicken and fish and not so much red meat. Although I don't tell patients they can't eat red meat. You know, we have a lot of people out there that are vegetarian now. They can get their protein through beans and other, other sources, lots of fresh fruit and vegetables. Stay away in general from the overly processed food that many Americans eat, you know, fast food. We like it cause it's so easy to just pull up and somebody hands you a bag of food, but you know, we all know. Is it really food? It has calories, so I guess it cal- qualifies. But, um, you know, th- there is healthy restaurant food, but most restaurant food, you know, they want the food to taste good and they want it to be convenient. So they're focusing more on those features than the health aspects of it. Now, one of the things I remember you said to me is you need to cut down on salt. Definitely for patients with high blood pressure and other forms of heart disease like diastolic heart failure and systolic heart failure and even AFib, um, low salt will help prevent swelling and reduce blood pressure and reduce stroke risk. Uh, the average American eats three or four times more sodium than they should eat. Um, they say the normal range is, we want to be ideally less than two grams of sodium a day. The average American has five to eight grams. So you know, we're, we're getting way too much salt from all sorts of different sources. And if you drink a lot of water, it doesn't just wash it out? No, it's, it's kind of the opposite because I have patients that tend to swell up and they think, well, if I just stop drinking water, I won't swell up. And I tell them it's actually the opposite. So too much salt in your body, it acts like a sponge and it makes you hold on to the water no matter how much water you drink. Wow. And, if, you know, if you're not eating too much salt and you're otherwise healthy, you can kind of drink as much water as you want. It'll eventually, you know, it flushes out through your kidneys. Um, but too much salt as we get older makes us retain fluid and Causes swelling of the legs, shortness of breath, blood pressure goes up. That's why we were talking last week about ingredient labeling uh, at fast food restaurants now and uh, other restaurants. Otherwise, you would never know how much salt is in something. Yeah. If you read the label, it's there. Yeah. The most important thing is if you're eating at home, and, and I really encourage my patients to prepare their own food if, if possible, but you can salt your food while you're cooking it, but never bring a salt shaker to the table. That is an absolute hard stop. Yeah. I come... Um, I, my, my background, my husband is Polish, and, and part of the way that they would eat is they would sit down, and before even tasting their food, they'd start shaking it, you know, shaking the salt shaker all over it, and it would just absolutely disgust me. And so I stopped bringing the salt shaker to the table, or or I give him that new salt, and he thinks that's the most disgusting thing he's ever eaten, so he just forgets that's it. That's fake salt. <laughs> he forgets it and doesn't eat it. Yeah, definitely. I tell my patients when I, when I launch into the salt talk, Rule number one, get rid of the salt shaker. Mm -hmm. There's salt in everything we eat, you know, unless you're eating maybe fresh fruit or fresh vegetables that you haven't added any salt. But I tell them you can add the salt in a recipe. It's often a quarter teaspoon or a half teaspoon. That's okay. Uh, You can eat that at home. Um, Then I go through a list of things that has a lot of salt, which, you know, a lot of my favorite foods. Any meat that's been cured, so ham, bacon, sausage, salami, cheese has a lot of salt. 
most things in a can has a lot of salt. Most pre-prepared food has a lot of salt. It's a preservative. Restaurant food tends to have a lot of salt because, I mean, it does make food taste better, especially if you're just used to that. You mentioned to me last time I saw you about bouillon cubes, how (laughs) shocked you were. And and I had some at home because my wife uses it to create a a chicken broth for stuff. I, I look at the package. It's like 20 million grams of salt. Unbelievable. Yeah, the little cube. I had, I had, Tiny little cube. I had had a patient who used to season each meal with a bouillon cube. One of the, I had to look it up. It, wow. It, it was consommé de pollo, it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. So I went to HEB and found it and looked it up. And each little cube, which is you know like a centimeter by a centimeter, uh, was a gram of salt. And Which actually would be okay if you're making a soup. You know, that's going to be eight servings. That Diluted. Would, that would be okay, but, you know having that spiced onto your meal. And that actually brings me up to another one that I've just thought of. So like ramen noodles, it's a nice cheap meal. A lot of college kids eat it, but I also worry sometimes that our seniors eat it because it's so cheap. Like you can get like 10 packs for like a buck. Mm-hmm. It basically, the little seasoning is basically like a little bouillon cube and, and there's quite a bit of salt in those. Not good. Not good no, at all. And, and but, there, but there are alternatives to salt too. So what I tell patients is when you're looking to flavor your meal, Anything citrus actually has more, your palate takes it in as a salt flavor. And so I tell people all the time, bring lemons with you everywhere you go and season your meat with lemon. And it actually will help. And it tricks your brain into thinking that it's salt. I have to try that. Many of the salt substitutes, the the one I'm familiar with is Mrs. Dash, um, is mostly herbs with no sodium in it. Um, so you mentioned new salt. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what's in it, new salt. It's just like Mrs. Dash. Um, yeah. it, it, it doesn't have any flavor to it. <laughs> but that's the whole point is, is you've got to trick your brain into liking something different besides just salt. The other thing that I think is true is I tell patients, if you can eliminate the salt after two or three months, you'll kind of retrain your palate. And if you went back and ate what you were eating right now, you would be like, oh, my gosh, that's so salty. And the same thing like if you stop drinking like fully, you know, sugar sodas and you stop and you go back you're like oh my god i can't believe i used to drink this sugar syrup one of the hot water drinks is uh, topa chica uh, which i can't drink it's salty i don't know if you've had it i know what it's it is too I, salty for me i don't know how much sodium in is in it, it it's just fizzling fizzy mineral water is what they they sell it as i right. don't know i can't drink it Ugh. yeah I don't like it so i i don't know i'd have to look at the label and, oh. and that is the one thing i tell my patients like you said you know, you don't have to memorize how much salt's in anything, but start to read the labels and get used to adding things up. And if it has more than two or three hundred milligrams, unless that's your whole meal, you probably should just stay away. Now, is there more on stroke prevention? We've done exercise. We've done diet. Yeah. So the next three, I would kind of say this is in cooperation with you and your doctor. The first two you can totally do on your own, but that is making sure your blood pressure is well controlled. So somebody needs to be checking it, whether it's you or your doctor staying below the, the recommended goals. Which keep changing. Well, they, yeah, we've adjusted them, made them more strict, and then kind of backed off. With all these treatments, there's a good and there's a bad, what we call a risk and a benefit. So it you do do well with a lower blood pressure to prevent strokes, but there also is a risk of having a blood pressure too low. Like if I have an 80-year-old lady who I get her blood pressure down to 110 over 70, her stroke risk may be very low, but also her risk of passing out from, you know, if she gets a little bit sick and her blood pressure drops a little bit, she falls down and breaks her hip. And now she's in the hospital for, you know, a week and she's in rehab for several weeks and she may never make a full recovery. 50% who break a hip when you're over 65 go to the hospital don't come out alive. Number's huge. Yeah. Well, we're doing better with that, um, but it is it is a major milestone of, you know, number one, you to fall and break your hip, there's probably other things in your life that are in your health that right, are not, not just well. the hip. But it's certainly a marker of, you know, your balance is bad, your strength is bad, your bones are not strong. And then once you go in the hospital, it, you know, that's a big setback. You can recover fully, um, but it takes a lot of effort. And certainly there should be a careful medical reevaluation of what can we do better uh, to try to keep this from happening again and improve the overall health. So our next thing would be glucose, blood glucose, diabetes, um, making sure that that's monitored. Our well-med doctors check that probably twice a year, even if you're not known to be a diabetic. They check A1C. A1Cs. And then often you're also getting a metabolic panel probably twice a year that has a fasting glucose on it. So you're getting checked closely for diabetes. 
And if it's elevated, certainly, again, we're talking diet and exercise would be the first treatment, but many patients are going on medication uh, for lowering that. And the last one would be cholesterol, which is another thing you have to have a blood test to know what your cholesterol is. And we do a good job of following that and treating that to goals. And our doctors actually are monitored for how well they're complying with national guidelines on treating blood pressure, on treating blood glucose, uh, and treating the cholesterol. So if so you're they're getting graded, it, we get graded. So if, if you're seeing a well-med doctor and you are following what they tell you and doing your best, probably you're doing pretty good at all three of those. I mean, some patients are very difficult to control one or more of those uh, for various reasons, but our standard well-med patient, their blood pressure's at goal, their cholesterol's at goal, their diabetes is well-managed. I have the right to remain silent about that. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's important and, and to take the medication. You know, of course, as as well med physicians and, and providers, we really try to to not give you medication first. We really try to do lifestyle changes. But you've got to come to us with the will and the motivation to be able to do the lifestyle changes, whether it be changing your diet and adding exercise. Well, I'm not going to say whether it be either or. It needs to be diet and exercise together. And and then when nothing else is working. Then we add the medications, and then you're, we're judged on compliance. So give us that list one more time. So diet. Diet, exercise, controlling blood pressure, controlling blood sugar, controlling cholesterol. And then there's at least one more I want to talk about, which is smoking. Overall, smoking rates are going down, but we still have a significant percentage of our patients that smoke, uh, and that certainly puts you at risk for a whole variety of diseases, but stroke would be on that list. Heart attack would also be on that list lung disease, uh, peripheral circulation problems, a variety of cancers. So I'm always, uh, I ask all my patients, do you smoke? Luckily, most of them say no. The ones that say yes, I'm like, oh, now I got to give you my 10-minute sermon. <laughs> and smokers always lie. How much do you smoke? Eh, maybe, maybe a couple a day. Well, I, I don't want to impugn anybody because... I can say that. And smokers always have allergies. It's just their allergies or their asthma. It's never their COPD that's, that's at play here. <laughs> Well, if, so if you're talking about denial, we're all in denial about sure. probably sure. multiple things, so I don't want to impugn smokers. But I did have a guy last week who had his Marlboros in his front pocket. I'm like, all right, you got you got a lot of bravery to bring that to the cardiologist appointment. Exactly. <laughs> well, and At least he was honest. I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> and do they become compliant when you give your 10-minute talk? Well, I mean, it's smoking, it's, it's a tough habit. In fact, if there's anybody out there listening who's young, just don't start. It's like it's the most fastest things. growing group of smokers, yeah. young people. So don't start, don't get that taste for nicotine, that addiction, because if you look around, there's people, I've had patients who've had double, you know, uh, open heart surgery, like in the year 1995 and another one 10 years later, and they're still smoking. And I'm like, how can you keep smoking? They're like, it, you know, it's a powerful addiction. Um, and you, there's a lot of different ways to try to quit. I mean, certainly willpower is a huge part of it, but Wanting to quit is another big part, but it's difficult. I know people who were on oxygen, and they would just turn the oxygen off so they could smoke. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if I want to tell this story, but we used to tell patients, you know, don't smoke on your oxygen. You're going to light yourself on fire. I always thought that we were just lying, you know, an urban legend of some sort. That's not really true. We, I had a patient when I was in the military whose oxygen was on, he kind of, I think he had stepped outside so he wouldn't smoke in the house, which was good, and he cupped his hand to kind of block the wind, and it must have built up the oxygen. And when he lit the cigarette, uh, his face caught on fire. Oh. Uh, it was, I mean, it was terrible. Any firefighter, and I'm married to one, will tell you that a combination of, of, of a lit match or a source and, and oxygen will, yeah, end, end in detriment. Yeah. So it, it is very sad. And, and plus, it, it not only hurts the patient, but it, can blow up the whole building if you really yeah. think about it. So l let me try to end on a positive note. I, I feel well, we got a little time. I Go feel ahead. sorry for any smokers out there listening. Like they're just hating on me. <laughs> we do have a smoking cessation program. Uh, we have a PA Amanda Kyle who runs this. It's free. Um, it's generally at the McCullough office uh, downtown. But basically, a series of classes to go in detail about details of you know the risks of smoking, but also suggestions on how to quit. Um, and then also medication to help you quit, uh, things like Chantix and, and other medication. That but if you assist. listen to all the side effects from Chantix, it's scary. Well, don't pay attention. May to lead TV to suicide, <laughs> death, whatever. So does aspirin. If you read the back of it yeah. too, I don't listen to TV commercials. You know, Chantix works. From what you've seen, uh, so in some people, I learned this. I think early on in medical school, if something worked, 
like say for smoking, if there was something that worked, that would be the treatment. When there's a hundred different treatments, so like for smoking cessation, you have anything from Chantix to hypnosis to I went cold turkey to I had acupuncture. Um, I gradually cut down one cigarette a week until I quit smoking. Yep. Each of those might work in somebody, in one person, but you know, there is no foolproof way to quit smoking. No magic bullet. No. So I, you know, I tell patients, most people who eventually quit have had a number of attempts to quit where they might have stopped briefly and restarted. Uh, my mother uh, quit smoking with each, each of the children and then restarted and then eventually, 20 years later, stopped. But don't let past failures um, make you think that it's hopeless. Try again. Um, the next time might be the time that you're able to quit. And just, you know, every day of life is a battle in some way. Now, you were in the military 20-plus years. Everybody smoked. Back in the old days, everybody used to, you know, as most of us know, they used to basically give you a smoke break. This was before my time, really. Right. But they would give you a smoke break. And if you smoked, you could go. didn't have to stand at attention. And if you didn't smoke, you had to stand in like a dummy, like at attention. So, of course, you know, even people that didn't want to smoke would go smoke. And then also, basically, they almost gave them away for free. They did actually give them away for free with your meal kits, I think, back in the 60s yeah, and 70s. Yeah, too, too. And, and probably Vietnam. When I was in, you could buy them on the base at the commissary for very cheap, like, you know, a carton for 10 bucks, I think, you know, which is like 10 packs for $10. Um, they've raised the prices and, and, and cut back on that. But um, certainly, retired military used to be very high smoking rates. Not so much anymore. And I guess the big surprise, you don't see it as much now, is how many doctors used to smoke. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Doctors are no... They're like everybody else. <laughs> Sometimes I think we think we're immune to some of the things because you know, we know better somehow, but I don't think it works that way. You never smoked? Cigarettes, no. I smoke cigars. I, I better say cigars because I don't want people out there thinking, is Dr. Thompson a marijuana smoker? No, I do not smoke marijuana. <laughs> 20 years of drug testing in the Air Force, no. Oh, they do test, yeah. Oh, That's yeah, right. Test. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I don't really want to go into this, but I do have some patients that smoke marijuana. Even I had a patient last week who's 85 who told me, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I smoke pot, Doc. I'm like, yeah, we don't actually know the long-term health effects of smoking but marijuana. But he's 85. He's 85. Um, you know, most marijuana smokers are not smoking 10 or 20 a day. Right. So I, I'll say I don't have a medical opinion on that. Yeah. It is illegal in the state of Texas, so it's, it is. you should generally avoid things that are illegal in the state of Texas. There's a piece in Sunday New York Times about trade-off marijuana versus cigarettes. And uh, the, the debate is still going on. Well, like they say, you know, they say marijuana is natural. Well, so is tobacco. It's grown naturally. I can tell you if I spent summers picking tobacco out you in North Carolina. You said your uncle grew tobacco. Yeah, out in North Carolina. And so we, I would spend some summers out there, you know, picking it. But it, it's natural as well. It's just it, neither one yeah. of them are good for you. So is alcohol and heroin. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's all natural. You can, you can justify it any way you want to. But, but regardless, you should not be taking that stuff into your lungs. You're at greater risk of, of clogging arteries and and, and all sorts of making messes, all sorts in your body. Yeah, You didn't mention alcohol in, in any of this. Is that related to strokes as well? Well, excessive alcohol use can cause high blood pressure, and that would increase risk of stroke. Um, certainly drunkenness from you know, excessive alcohol, you know, where you may have trauma, things like car accidents or falling down, you would be at a higher risk of the hemorrhagic-type stroke. Um, so I would say yes. I mean, certainly... There are a lot of health, health risks of excessive alcohol that pe people should, if they drink, be moderation, which moderation is one to two for a male and only one a day for a female. And for those beer drinkers... Four ounces, one a day. It depends. For, it's one beer, one ounce of hard liquor, or four to five ounces of wine, mm -hmm. I think. And, and, you know, for the beer drinkers, there's a lot... A lot of salt in beer. Even in the low-calorie beer, beer, there's still a lot of salt. So when they say that it makes them bloat and it makes them swell, well, because they're drinking too much beer and they need to stop. I'll have to look at the labels on that. I was not aware of that. There's a lot of salt. Huh. Yeah. You're only talking if you add that little beer salt that people carry around? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, you know, moral of the story is, is to... Eat as healthy as you possibly can and, and drink in moderation and, and exercise where, where you can. One, one of my healthiest patients, he's 97 years old right now and just completed a half marathon. And, you know, the worst thing that he's got, he's bald, and he used to be a um, fighter pilot. And that was back in uh, World War II where they didn't have any of the 
protection. Mm-hmm. And so his his sweet little head, you know, was exposed. And and that's the worst thing that he's got going on. Yeah. So skin cancer. Is well it's not even cancer at this point. It's it's just, you know, these Stuff. little actinic keratoses that we burn off all the time. But he's a healthy guy and he'll tell you. I exercise. It was the military. I exercise all the time. That's what I, Dr. Thompson pointed out. I yeah. eat right, and and I don't smoke, and I don't drink. And and look at me. I'm 97, and plus he's got great genes, too. Hmm. <laughs> well, genetics plays a big role in this. Yeah, I mean, that certainly plays a big role in all of these uh, diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes and cholesterol. But you still do have to follow a healthy diet and exercise, and you can overcome your genes by you know, being very unhealthy in your lifestyle habits, and you can certainly help them um, by exercising and, and uh, eating healthy. And we'll come right back to you. This is WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke. We're talking with cardiologist, Dr. Chris Thompson. Carol Zorniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, we have certainly been learning a lot about strokes, both hemorrhagic and ischemic, learning a lot about what some of the warning signs are and ways in which you can conduct yourself to try to reduce the risk of stroke. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke. This is WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer, talking with Dr. Chris Thompson. Uh, and you mentioned to me off the air that there, there are some tests that can screen for your risk of stroke. Yeah, I, I guess um, let me first say, if you have a stroke and you go to the hospital, you know, they do a series of tests to try to figure out what causes stroke. And sometimes we find a cause, and, and surprisingly often we don't. Um, but you would have a CT scan, an MRI of the brain, which would detect things like aneurysms of the blood vessels of the brain, it may detect blockage within the blood vessels of the brain or the carotid arteries. A scan of the carotid arteries would uh, commonly be done. A scan of the heart called an echocardiogram to look for uh, problems with the valves, a weak heart, abnormal connections like this hole in the heart uh, to be detected. Um, Echocardiograms like a sonogram? The sonogram of the heart, yeah, ultrasound of the heart. And then heart monitoring, you often would be on a heart, generally would be on a heart monitor while you're in the hospital. We often will have patients do another monitor after they go home looking for AFib, because uh, you can have AFib at home, not realize it, coming with a stroke, and the heart's back to normal, and we don't see that, and we may pick it up later when we when we do a monitor. Um, and then, as we mentioned, you know, monitoring blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, um, if you've never had a stroke, it's somewhat controversial about, you know, what sort of testing should you have. I mean, we don't generally go do CAT scans or MRIs of the brain looking for these aneurysms because they're fairly rare. But, you know, you may have a CT scan of the brain done for some other reason, and they may find them. We do carotid scans. They're not recommended on the general population if you are at higher risk for atherosclerosis. Uh, like patient over 65 who's a smoker with high blood pressure or diabetes, you may get a carotid scan. Uh, the physical exam that your doctor does when you go for a checkup is helpful, too. They uh, can listen to your heart rhythm if they suspect an abnormality, an EKG will be done. They listen to your carotid arteries, and certainly if we hear noises over the carotid arteries, what we call a brewery, then you would do that ultrasound for sure. Um, but screening the general population is controversial as far as whether the cost uh, is worth because there's some clinics, uh, I know up in Dallas, for example, you pay $80 million and they'll screen you for everything. Yeah, and in San Antonio, there's uh, mobile trucks that go around and they'll do kind of a health check where they'll do an EKG and a carotid ultrasound and an abdominal ultrasound. And there may be, I think, a peripheral artery screen. I would at least tell our well-med patients, 
And I think it costs $150, which is not too much. But for our well-med patients, I would say, hey, if you're concerned about these, ask your primary doctor, um, do I need these tests done? You probably have had at least some of them done by an EKG. You just didn't know. Yeah. But the carotid scan, the doctor would look at your risk profile and decide if it needs to be done or not. The scans are done by groups of doctors that, you know, if they find abnormalities, they get to do more testing. And there certainly can be a financial incentive behind that. Now, I'm not going to say that they don't sometimes prevent heart attacks or strokes, but certainly there's a financial incentive to go right. out recruit patients by finding abnormalities on these tests. And when you find an amorality, amorality, that's something else. Abnormality? Abnormality. You have to follow up. Yeah. Then, you know, one test leads to more tests. And right. sometimes you're having surgery. And even some of the surgeries are debatable whether they really prevent strokes, especially given that our medical treatments now are very good at getting cholesterol and diabetes and blood pressure under control. Hmm. So the, the kind of standard carotid bypass surgery, uh, it's even somewhat debatable of, of is that really necessary uh, given that the medical treatment is better. The studies that showed that it was beneficial to reduce stroke risk were done about 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, they need to be redone to really know that for sure. Cora, you get the last word. I, I just continue to tell people you, it's all about what you put. It's 80% what you put in your mouth, 20% how you how you exercise, and those combinations will reduce your risk of stroke and, and all other diseases as well. Dr. Thompson, we appreciate you coming in. All right, I guess I'll be back soon. Oh, you will be. You're on the list of, you get reinvited. I think I've talked about everything I know anything about, so you're right. Wow. We'll have to wait for another celebrity (laughs) having a problem. I guess. And then we'll get you back. Thank you, Dr. Chris Thompson, specialist for health with WellMed. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, nurse practitioner. We thank you for joining us on WellMed Radio, and we will talk with you again soon. 5 p.m. Sundays on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You've been enjoying WellMed Radio, an exclusive presentation of WellMed Medical Management. Join us next week for more on your health and well-being. For more information on WellMed or to hear this broadcast again, go to wellmedmedicalgroup.com. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio.